By nature, are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Miles Herbert. This is Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Australia is in the middle of a debate about coal. The mining of coal is the world's leading cause of carbon dioxide emissions, which lead to the warming of the planet and climate change. Countries around the world, like China and Germany, are moving away from traditional coal-fired power stations. And moving towards renewable energy sources as their main source of electricity. Australia, on the other hand, producer of about 30% of the world's coal, is in the midst of a vast expansion in coal production in the outback of Queensland. Indian billionaire Gautam Adani's $21 billion proposal to build a giant mine in the Galilee Basin has outlasted three Australian prime ministers, and survived the signing of the Paris Climate Agreement. In which Australia promised to cut CO2 emissions in an effort to combat the effects of climate change, the Queensland government, ignoring the science completely, has supported the mine from day one. So why are politicians so intent on ignoring the realities of climate change? We have business-funded organizations espousing ideas about climate change that are not only not true but are incredibly damaging. But first, to find out a bit more about Australia's obsession with coal, I spoke to Tom Morton, associate professor of journalism, researcher for the Climate Justice Research Centre at the University of Technology Sydney, and producer of the ABC radio documentary Beyond the Coal Rush. Let's just say he's been around coal for a while. Yeah, far too long.、Um, no, look, I've been fascinated by coal for. Oh, getting on for ten years now, and it's a weird sort of thing to be fascinated by. But it all started when I read a little piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, an interview with a guy called Graham Brown, who's a former coal miner who became、uh, an anti-coal activist, and he'd gone on a holiday to Patagonia to go and see the glaciers. And he was chatting to、uh, the guy that drove the charter boat because you have to go. By water to get to get to the glaciers, and he was chatting to the guy who drove the boat. And Patagonian guy said, "Ah,、oh, Graham,、uh, what do you do for a living?" And Graham said, "I'm a coal miner." And the Patagonian fellow said, "Graham, your coal is killing us." By which he meant, of course, that coal is the major contributor to climate change, 46% of global total CO2 emissions. And what he was saying was, the glaciers in Patagonia are starting to melt. With very dramatic effects on local populations and their livelihoods and their food sources, so he was drawing a direct link between coal that's being mined in Australia and burned in power stations and the effects of climate change in Patagonia. So, in Australia, do you think that the narrative around coal is driven by science, or do you think it's driven by something else?、Uh, look, it's certainly driven by politics at the moment, and it, it in many ways. The longer that we have studied this, and the longer that we've looked at what's going on in other countries, the kind of grip that coal still has, and the coal industry still has on politics in Australia, becomes harder and harder to understand. Because elsewhere in the world, countries like China 
uh, now of course the world's largest uh, emitter of CO2 and reasonably soon to become the world's largest economy. The Chinese government has made a clear policy statement that it is moving away from its reliance on coal-fired power. What that means is China is generating more electricity from wind power than all of the electricity that we generate and use in Australia. Now, that's a staggering kind of a figure. So it's really hard to understand why even when China, which has a very, very large economy and is still very heavily reliant on coal, China is saying we have to move away from coal. We don't quite seem to be able to bring ourselves to do that. I think there's definitely been pushback on this move towards renewables. In 2012, Queensland Premier Campbell Newman said Queensland's in the coal business. If Queensland wants decent hospitals and schools, Queensland needs coal. So is Australia actually dependent on coal? Is the infrastructure of this country really reliant on the coal industry? No. I mean, certainly Australia has been reliant in the past, or state governments in particular in Australia have been reliant on coal for uh, revenues, um, uh, levies, mining levies and so on. And yes, at the moment, uh, Australia is still reliant on coal-fired generation for the majority of its electricity, but there are other ways. We, like many, many other countries in the world, are facing this very, very stark question now we have to move away from coal. And if we want to stay below that two degree warming limit, then basically about 82% of the world's coal has to stay in the ground. And we are neither reliant or neither need to be reliant on coal for electricity generation, nor do we need to be reliant on it economically. Where does that idea come from? Australia even has a chief scientist who... I imagine sole purpose is to inform the public and politicians about the importance of science and policy decisions. Yet when Alan Finkel released his report earlier this year and backed the push for an Australia that relies more heavily on renewables, there wasn't bipartisan support. Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott even said, anything that makes it impossible for us to bank new, efficient coal-fired power stations is a big mistake. So if the chief scientist is saying it, why isn't there bipartisan support for a push towards renewables? Well, look, I think there are economic, political and psychological reasons. And certainly, as I say, you know, governments um, have been reliant on coal revenues, particularly state governments. The Queensland Premier has said again recently that if we don't go ahead with the Adani coal mine, Queensland will lose something like $185 million a year in coal royalties or mining royalties. State governments like that money and it's very hard to get them to think about alternative ways of generating revenue. The politics are more complicated and part of the problem here, of course, is that we have, I think, within the conservative parties, a constituency, particularly the right wing of the Liberal Party, which really, it identifies coal with a whole kind of version of Australian identity which you know, I would argue and many people would argue belongs to the past, yeah? So it's this idea that somehow the coal industry is part of an Australia or part of what made Australia great. Um, it's part of this whole notion that, you know, mining is what primarily should support the Australian economy. And, of course, it's linked within certain sections of the Liberal Party to a strong belief that climate change is not happening, that it's not caused by humans. And really, 
this is no longer something scientific. This is an article of faith. It's part of a, a system of values and what I would call a psychology, a mindset that says if you're a conservative, part of your identity is to, number one, not believe in anthropogenic climate change, and number two, continue to support coal, and number three, be opposed to the introduction of renewable energy. And that's why, you know, at the top of Tony Abbott's wish list uh, is a moratorium on new wind-powered energy, even though wind is now cheaper than coal-fired power. But what about clean coal? I hear those words bandied around a lot by resource companies, politicians, and across media outlets as a cheaper and more environmentally friendly option. Well, there is no such thing as clean coal. There is cleaner coal, and here we have to distinguish between two different kinds of coal-fired power generation. So there's so-called high-efficiency, low-emissions coal plants. Basically, these are more efficient ways of burning coal, which reduce the amount of CO2 that's emitted when it's burned. But the point is, they're only about 10% more efficient. That is, they only reduce emissions by about 10% more than the older generation of so-called subcritical technology. And even with clean coal, we can only burn 6% more of the world's coal reserves if we want to stay below that that warming limit. So it's really going to make very little difference to the total amount of coal that we can use, the total amount of coal that we can burn. And the real question is, why would you be investing in this expensive and costly technology when the price of renewables is coming down all the time? Do you think that the words clean coal were kind of intended to confuse the public about what it actually is? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly I think it's part of a marketing exercise by the coal industry. I guess one way of putting it is clean coal and CCS are kind of a fig leaf that uh, the coal industry are using to cover their nakedness. And the nakedness they're covering is the fact that these technologies, number one, are extremely expensive, and number two, do not provide any sort of long-term solution to the issue of of global warming. That was Tom Morton from the University of Technology, Sydney. The extraction and use of coal for power is not a new phenomenon. In Australia, the industry was born in Newcastle during the 1830s. Back then, we didn't know about climate change and the devastating effects coal can have on our planet. But resource companies have a long history of covering up their impact on the earth. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics at the University of Sydney and the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. David grew up on Long Island in the suburbs of New York, and he remembers running through fog in the streets of his hometown. But the fog wasn't due to moisture in the air. The smog was due to the spraying of DDT by trucks that raced through the streets he played in after school. DDT is a tasteless and odorless insecticide that was meant to control the mosquito population. It wasn't until a writer named Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring, uncovering the devastating impact DDT was having on the Long Island songbird population, that the fog trucks of David's youth disappeared. Carson was immensely popular. She was actually popular and won a Pulitzer a decade earlier for work on the ocean. She was just an absolutely beautiful writer. She was 
what we'd now call a great research translator. None of the work that she did and published in Silent Spring was new. It was just bringing to the public all this information that was already out there about the impacts of pesticides, mostly on environment, less so on, on human health. And yeah, I remember just running through the DDT fog trucks. And, you know, it's less about the impacts on, you know, on me or on people personally. The, the thing that gets me now thinking back is that there was a concerted campaign by the chemical industry against Carson and against the findings, which delayed any kind of legislative action on DDT for a decade from 1962 to 1972. And it's in that decade that I used to play in the fog. And what did that campaign look like from, from the pesticide industry? Well, it was mostly personal against her, you know, the just classic 1960s stuff, accusing her of being a communist, being anti-business, being a hysterical woman, you know, not being married. And so what did that mean? I mean just every sort of gendered attack on her that you can imagine to undermine what was really not her work, but just her explanation of the work that was going on. And you said it prevented action. How long did it take for a policy response to come from DDT? It took a decade until 1972 uh, for the U.S. to ban the spraying of DDT in that, that kind of way. And then, of course, the chemical industry continued its attacks and still continues its attacks on, on Carson and on environmentalists for you know, being responsible for millions of uh, malaria deaths and other things, even though DDT was never banned for that particular purpose. So they blamed her for malaria. How, how did that work? <laughs> well, even though DDT was banned for use in agriculture in the U.S., it was never banned internationally for agricultural use, or it was never banned anywhere for use, you know, against uh, mosquitoes for malaria. It just, it just wasn't part of what she was responsible for. And yet, just because she had brought out this information about the industry, the industry used her and still uses her as that sort of center of attack and accuses her of inspiring the radical environmental movement, which, you know, uses poor research to make its arguments. Who is attacking her? Who are the people that are coming after her and calling her a communist and, and saying all these gendered ad hominem attacks on this writer? Well, I mean, this is where this sort of long history of what Naomi Oreskes calls the, the merchants of doubt comes in. You know, in the pesticide industry, in the tobacco industry, and obviously around climate change, there's just been this long history of corporate-funded right-wing think tanks, which have, the lobbying is there to delay the implementation of laws. And so they're there to sort of obfuscate the findings, to create some sort of uncertainty so that there won't be uh, you know, as much of a public support for acting. I mean, as a business model, it's been incredibly successful. So successful, obviously, in the pesticides. It was successful with tobacco for a while. It was incredibly successful in the climate space. I guess when I hear you talk about that, I, I see, like, really sinister men in suits sitting in, in corporate rooms or bunkers sitting around devising evil plots. Is it that far off from that? 
uh, that's kind of what I picture as well. So I don't know. I mean, we have information, and there's been you know incredible research that's been done on the flows of funds. But I mean, you know, there, there aren't anybody, and nobody can tell the story from the inside. Um, though what we do know, um, in terms of sinister plots, I mean, we do know, for example, with Exxon Mobil. We know they knew about the impacts of climate change. They knew about the impact of the fossil fuel industry on the atmosphere. They knew about this decades ago, and yet they still created this campaign and funded the the denialist campaign. These are the same people who painted Rachel Carson as a killer, right? Someone who killed millions of people from malaria. If they've painted her as a killer, what image are they trying to paint of people who believe in in climate change? What's their goal? It's been a little different because it's so many people, right? So it's not just an individual like Rachel Carson. So it's not just about the attacks on one person, though that's still there. It's really now becoming much more of an attack on science and expertise as a whole, which is a really troubling shift. And it's just, it's disturbing that there is now this sort of ideological science denial out there. So it's it's really shifted from the, the individual to a more institutional kind of uh, denialism. There's a lot of academics. There's a lot of scientists. There's, what, 98%, 99% you know, agreement that humans are a part of global warming and add to the warming of the planet. How many think tanks are there? How pervasive are the think tanks that are perpetuating this idea? I don't think it matters. The number doesn't matter as much as the reality. I mean, the reality is that we have business-funded organizations espousing ideas about climate change that are not only not true, but are incredibly damaging, right? So here we have this campaign to obfuscate or delay any kind of climate policy. And it's a good business decision in terms of profits, but it's probably the single most effective lobbying campaign against the public interest, not just in US history, but in history. I I just can't imagine anything like that. The damage that campaign will do to the planet, right? The climate change locked in because of the lack of action inspired by this denialist machine it's going to harm people, it's going to decimate ecosystems, it's going to cost trillions of dollars for us to adapt to it if we can even adapt to it. Do you think that to capitalize on that, to continue to push their economic output in the long term, do you think that they've they've used this kind of post-truth era that has sprung up over the last three or four years to, to push their own narrative? I mean, people have been spouting bullshit for as long as there have been people. So that's not new. Um, this, the, the word post-truth, the phrase post-truth is new each year. But we're really trying to get at what is new about this. And for me, in a lie, the liar knows that they're deceiving. Right? They, know, they know the truth, and they know that they're telling something that isn't true. That's a lie. Bullshit is when you don't really care about the difference, and you're just spouting something. Right? And we're getting a lot more bullshit now. And I think this is where the ideology stuff comes in, because what happens is you have the minerals counselor or whoever creating a lie. That lie is then told over and over again, including by people who don't really understand that it's a lie. 
let's use, you know, Abbott or Malcolm Roberts or someone like that. And they spout bullshit because they don't really understand that what they're saying is like, well, maybe Abbott does. Um, but there's this shift. And then there is then this ideological adherence to what is said by someone on the right, right? So we, we're moving from lies to bullshit to an ideology that adopts bullshit as its own discourse. So in simple terms, post-truth bullshit leads to climate skepticism? I don't know if I'd put it that way. I think climate denialism was, it was a lie, right? It was a very specific design of lies about the science in order to support the industry. And I think that started as lies. It turned into bullshit because people would repeat that. People in the industry are more likely politicians would would repeat that without understanding the difference between the truth and the lie. But then it's just become adopted as something that's ideological. And so you can't talk about climate change with anybody anymore. You know, it's you're on one side or the other. That was David Schlossberg from the University of Sydney. Even though David thinks the conversations around climate change have done nothing but divide the public, we still seem to be having the discussion on a regular basis. Last year on Q&A, there was a climate change showdown between Professor Brian Cox and One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts. But despite this open dialogue, we never seem to reach common ground. I spoke with Nick Enfield, linguist from the University of Sydney, about the language we use when we have these discussions about climate change and how the words used by resource companies and politicians fuel the ideology of climate change denial. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about climate change. I think it's gone from a purely physical phenomenon, one that should be dominated by science, to one that is simultaneously social and political. It's moved from a scientific consensus to a bipartisan debate. And if it's become a debate, then it's become a discussion. So should we care about how climate change is being communicated? Absolutely we should, yeah. How it's being communicated is really how... It enters into people's consciousness. It's how we learn about what's happening. Uh, It's how we form our beliefs around what's happening. And our beliefs come to be reasons for making the decisions that we make. So your beliefs about what's going on will determine what you do. And the communication around that is everything. You know, that's how you come to have the beliefs that you have is through the public discourse, the sources of information that you have. So, you know, the sort of importance of the communication and the discourse around it uh, can't be stressed enough. We are currently having a debate in this country around coal. Resource companies like Adani seem adamant on selling coal to the Australian public, and now the Queensland government seems pretty intent on selling the Adani Carmichael mine to its citizens. And one of the ways they're going about selling this coal mine is by using words like clean coal. So where do those words, clean coal, come from? Well, that's obviously a kind of PR stunt. You know, there's some clever wordsmith in a PR company and she or he has decided that clean coal is a clever kind of phrase, which it clearly is. It sort of pokes into your mind in a way when you hear it, it's for the first time, it's kind of sounds unusual and you sort of, it actually breaks through your consciousness a little bit and it asks you to try to kind of assign some meaning to it that makes sense. And it reminds me of a famous passage in one of the old sort of pioneering linguistics books by Noam Chomsky. 
And he was making a point which was that you can formulate a sentence that is grammatically correct but that makes no sense at all. So as he was as he was trying to make this point, he gave this sentence and the sentence was colorless green ideas sleep furiously. And he was just said it in passing saying, well this is clearly a nonsensical sentence, but you can tell if you're an English speaker that it's grammatically fine. But it's quite interesting that a lot of people's reaction to that was to say, hang on, I can understand that sentence. I can give that sentence a meaning. And people have actually sort of written about this so-called nonsensical sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously, and have attributed all sorts of wise kinds of underlying uh, meanings to it. So it just shows that even if you're intentionally trying to be nonsensical, let alone sort of being nonsensical and trying to cover that up, the listener, because they essentially are oriented to language as being something that always fundamentally has meaning to it they're always going to find that meaning somewhere because we trust language and we trust the way people use language we search for a meaning and oftentimes we assume that there's some reality behind it that we're just not aware of so we might hear the term clean coal and and we might think oh that, that's interesting maybe they've invented a new way of you know burning coal that doesn't pollute the atmosphere and so forth and what about the simplicity of that word, right? It's extremely simple. It's actually even a bit alliterative. You know, it kind of comes out of your mouth in a really simple, clean way. Does the simplicity of clean coal play into the way it cuts through to people's attention spans? Yeah, I would say it does. But maybe the simplicity is less important than the alliterative nature of it. People are actually more inclined to believe or sort of give more weight to expressions that have a sort of a rhyme within them or they have some alliteration within them are, are judged by listeners to, to have more wisdom within them, if you know what I mean. So that definitely is a powerful thing and all marketing PR people know that. Are resource, our mining companies, our politicians just better at communicating than scientists? They have more money to pay PR companies. In the case of corporation, uh, it's not the CEO who's thinking up these clever strategies. I mean, they're, they're, they're hiring the best PR and marketing companies to do this, and that costs a lot of money. So it is a kind of a tall order when you think about it for scientists who are very well trained and quite stretched in terms of all of their activities and so on, that the idea that they should then go and learn to become expert PR people, you know, that's quite that's quite unlikely to, to happen. So it won't really develop properly until... Uh, you know, serious partnerships happen or until serious investment happens in the right kind of PR around um, good science. Before I let you go, I want to get your linguistic expertise on one more thing. If a resource company, a politician, or an Australian citizen swims against the tide of climate change and disagrees with the 97% of scientists who agree that humans do play a role in the warming of the planet... Are they a climate change skeptic or a climate change denier? Well, I'd say they were a climate change denier, but that's a very good kind of trick of language there to distinguish between those two things. And it has everything to do with the presuppositions of those terms. So for, for me, I'd say they were a climate change denier. And the word deny has this beautiful property that it really sort of strongly implies that the thing you're denying is actually true. As soon as you say you've denied something, even though it might not be true, people assume that's true and you're just saying that it isn't. So that's why, you know, climate change denier is, for me, a more accurate one. Climate change skeptic, well, that's sort of spinning it 
a little bit more positively. Skepticism is a valued property in science and, uh, you know, in sort of rational discourse generally, it's healthy to be skeptical. So, you know, that's exactly the kind of linguistic trick that, uh, that, uh, that somebody would want to play if they were trying to sort of portray themselves in good light. So I'd go for climate change denier. Thanks for listening to Think Sustainability. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favorite podcast app. Just type Think Sustainability in your search bar. We're also available on iTunes. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. Regular producer Jake Morcom will be back with you guys next week. I've been Miles Herbert. Thank you guys very much for listening when I've been here.